So if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 3. I will reread verses 9 through 18. That's what we have been dealing with. And then we will continue to uh, kind of work our way through those things that Paul uh, is seeking to, uh, to say here. So beginning in verse 9 of Romans 3, Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So in verses 10 through 18 of this passage, you will notice that four times uh, it states, and I read from the English Standard Version, four times it, it says, there is none or no one. Twice it says, no, not one. And then you also have phrases such as, they have all, or all have, or they have together. Uh, so the idea here with this is that Paul is reiterating what he's already explained to us in chapter 1 of Romans, and that is the universality of guilt. Everyone is guilty before God without exception. There is not a single individual who is not guilty of breaking God's law. There's not one individual who is not guilty of violating the commands of God. Every man has fallen short of God's glory. Every man has fallen short of God's standard. Uh, we are all in need of salvation. That's what Paul is getting at, is we're all in need of salvation. And maybe for clarification's sake, what we should also uh, remember is that we are all in need of salvation to the same degree. Because sometimes, we, again, we tend to think that there are those who have done things that are worse than what we have done. And, and on one hand, that's true. You know, it is true that someone who has murdered an individual, that they have a greater burden than, than we have in that sense. It is true that what they have done has greater consequence for them and for others than what we have done. But that doesn't make them more of a sinner than we are. We still both sin all the time. We're both living in rebellion to God. We're both living by our passions and disregarding who God is. We both disregard the law. Again, to break the law of God in one area is to be guilty of breaking the entire standard. So even if there are 5,000 laws that God had given us, if one person was only guilty of breaking 100 and another individual was guilty of breaking 3,000, the one who's guilty of breaking the 3,000, again, is not more guilty, though he will have greater punishment for what he's done wrong. But his actual guilt before God is based on the fact he's broken the law of God. The other individual who's only broken 100 or violated 100, he's broken the law of God. So at that moment in time, they both have disqualified themselves from being and living in the presence of God in heaven forever. And they are in need of salvation. Both of those individuals have done things that deserve their death. Both those individuals need to be saved by the blood of Christ, meaning the death of Christ. 
Christ is not going to bleed for the one who's violated a hundred commands, but then died for the one who's violated 2,000 commands. That's not how that works. So we want to make sure that we keep these distinctions very clear in our minds. So again, this universality of guilt then, uh, that's why Paul says then in verse 19, uh, this blanket statement that proves that all men are, are guilty, that's so that every mouth may be stopped. The idea is that, that no one can speak and say, I deserve salvation. No one can speak and say, I don't deserve God's punishment. No one can do that. Their mouths are stopped because of the case that's been presented by God, because of the knowledge that God has. So again, here in these verses, we have statements concerning the condition of man. Man has been corrupted by sin. We've been corrupted in varying degrees, but we are all, in one sense, completely corrupted. There's not one aspect of our humanity that has not been negatively affected by sin. Uh, these conditions affect our behavior. It affects our thinking. It affects our attitudes. Uh, and that, so that's why it's reflected in the first phrase that God uh, that Paul uses, which is really the leading proposition that Paul makes, and that is this: there is none righteous, no, not one. That is, that is the statement he makes that he's going to drive that point home: that there is no one who is righteous, meaning there is no one who is. I, we would say it this way: who possesses either enough righteousness or the right kind of righteousness. To where God says, because you are righteous, you deserve salvation. Because you are righteous, I owe you. That is an impossibility. There is no one who possesses that. So what Paul's going to do then is he's going to take that statement that there is none that are righteous and he's going to prove that statement by quotes and references from the Old Testament. Remember that when Paul writes Romans, still, even though there were some of the letters of Paul being passed around, primarily... The church had the Old Testament. That, that's all they had. And so Paul is going to use the Old Testament to show or to prove the point that he's making. Again, he says in verse 11, There is none or no one who understands. There is none or no one who seeks after God. There is no one. No one on their own does that. So, so we need to remember that. Sometimes when an individual uh, may share their testimony... They may say, well, I was looking for God for years, and after a long search, I, I finally found him. That statement is both true and untrue at the same time. What makes it true is they were seeking for something maybe greater than themselves. They may have been seeking after a God of their own imagination, but what we do know is they were not seeking the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were not seeking the completely righteous God of the Bible. They weren't doing that. Now, the reason why we know that is because God, who has created us, who knows all things, tells us that no one was doing that. So it's not that I would call someone a liar is that God just corrects their statement and says, well, actually, you are not seeking me. That, that, that man without the help of God or man unaided never seeks the God of the Bible on his own. So that's why in one sense we could say that, yeah, I was seeking God with a little g, but I was not seeking the one true God. That's not what I was doing. When he says in verse 11, there was no one who understands 
the word understand there basically is there is no one who comprehends God. Uh, there is no one who comprehends what, what that means to, to know God or, or to know who he is. They're unable to understand his existence. They don't understand what it means in everyday life. They don't understand the implications that his existence would have on us. We as believers continually, for most of our lives, learn what it means as far as that God is the ultimate, that God is everything. I remember for the, the first time I heard this statement that the only reason that you and I can communicate logically, so therefore the only way you and I can communicate effectively, is because God that, that that logic or the use of logic is dependent upon God. God has created logic. God is logic. He uses logic. God communicates to us. He's given us the ability to communicate. Outside of God or apart from God, we cannot communicate with each other. Now, most of the time, we actually we don't really believe that. Now, we really haven't thought about that a whole lot. But the idea is, is that Every single aspect of our humanity. Remember, we are made in the image of God. So the ability then to communicate, the use of language, hand signals, uh, body language, all those things, all those things that we, that we can take for granted, all those things that we do without thinking, we are, we are using the capabilities and the abilities that God has given us as human beings made in his image. So if he so if we were to remove God and God's existence, first of all, we wouldn't even exist. But if there was I guess we really can't speculate and say, well well what would we be like if God didn't exist? Because we would not be. But even if God ceased to exist while while we have life, we would not be able to communicate, we would not be able to think. Everything is dependent upon him. It's a very difficult thing to grasp. It's a very humbling thing to grasp. Uh, men and women who are atheists don't like to think about that. We, we want to think that we have life independent from God. That, that's really what the theory of evolution is all about. The theory of evolution is simply an attempt by man to find a way to reasonably explain the origins of man, where we came from, without God. Because if we talk about man being created, that automatically means then that we owe God something, that, that he's the one who's given us life. He's the one that, that we are to be thankful to, which Romans 1 again teaches us. And so man doesn't like to think that. He wants to, he suppresses that knowledge. So evolution is simply an attempt to do that. Uh, wh whatever aspect of theology or evolution that somebody may believe, that's really what they're trying to do. And that's why when people try to marry the theory of evolution with creation in the Bible and bring those two together and merge them, it just it's not going to work. A, because the Bible doesn't allow that to happen. God did not use evolution. Now again, when it comes to evolution, you have to be able to, again, make distinctions. There's macro and micro. Uh, Microevolution simply means that different species do possess the ability to change within their species. But again, that's because God has created in that way. Like even Darwin's finches, you know, if, if the finch has a beak that's, you know, a quarter of an inch long, and then when it's a dry season, it becomes a half an inch long so he can crack the seeds. All those variations are built into the DNA of, of that bird. Macroevolution would be 
uh, you know, on the larger scale where, where that fish becomes a land animal, where that land animal becomes a man. There's no evidence for that. Zero. Not even a hint of it anywhere. Uh, it has never happened. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. And so in that sense, evolution is untrue in every way. Even the kind of evolution that, that we accept, where we use the word evolution, really is not the most accurate word because, again, it's, it's only changes that take place in animals, fish, or plant life that it's already been built into their design to be able to change to some degree, to one degree or, or another. Even if we manipulate it ourselves, we can only get to a certain point. So man on his own really has a difficult time understanding the implications of the existence of God. And of course, man is in rebellion to that. And so we need to remember that not only were we that way before we became believers, but those that we're praying for, those that we are friends with that are not believers, that's the kind of people they are. They, they really don't get it. It's not because they're stupid. It's, it's not that they're unable to think. They don't think. They don't want to think. They, 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 again, remember that they willfully, according to Romans 1, which is from God, they willfully suppress that truth. Now, they do that in varying degrees. Some do it much more overtly than others. But the bottom line is man is guilty of that. Psalm chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, it reads this way. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? So here in the Old Testament, the 14th Psalm, the first four verses, it makes it very clear what we've been talking about here in the book of Romans. The fool, then, is the individual who stubbornly rejects the highest wisdom of all, which is the fear of God. Proverbs says that the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, is the fear of God. The fear of God is, is a reverential acknowledgement uh, that God exists, that He is sovereign, that He deserves to be worshipped, uh, and that he is to be honored. Uh, it is a uh, a heavy, we should have a heavy kind of respect for him. There should be some weight when we, when we think about God and talk about God. Um, and so the fool is the one who, remember there's, there's evidence. We've seen the evidence clearly in Romans 1. All men see the evidence as well as God is placed in men. Not only the ability to recognize the evidence, but all men know that God does exist. And remember, we, we've talked about uh, many times what man actually knows about God already. And so, man who does know that God exists and understands that aspect of it, there's no fear of God, no reverence, no gratefulness, none of that, which we've seen again in Romans 1. And again, that's how wisdom begins. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the application of knowledge. So, man's knowledge of, of what he sees and even a limited understanding of how things are working, uh, he should naturally make the come to the proper conclusions 
that there is a God. There's a supreme being who exists, who's powerful, who's created all things, who's created me. I owe him my allegiance. I owe him my gratitude. Uh, that would be the, the basic conclusions they, they should come to. But they don't. Not because they can't, but because they willfully don't want that to be true. And so they suppress that. So this, this fool then is the person who disregards God and he convinces himself or she convinces herself that God doesn't matter. Remember as we talked about Romans chapter 1 where it says that um, all men uh, understand, they not only understand the wrath of God, uh, but that the wrath of God is against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Remember that unrighteousness is the wrong things we do, but remember that ungodliness is is a little more of a general term and what it's described what it describes is the individual who may even live relatively morally but they live their life their lives as if God is unimportant they, they live as if God doesn't even matter or if or if God does exist so they live as if God doesn't exist but but even if he does exist they live their lives as if he doesn't matter doesn't matter what he says doesn't matter doesn't matter that he made me doesn't matter that I owe him my life he doesn't matter and so all men, then that's, that's, a, that's rebellion because we're doing this willfully and, and knowingly. Even individuals who don't think about it are doing it willfully. We sometimes think that, well, they don't really know any better. No one's ever told them. Remember, no one has to tell them certain things. When you and I talk to individuals, they, they know that God exists. So we kind of have that on our side when we talk to people about God. Now, many of them are very strongly suppressing the truth. So they may become angry when we talk to them about sin and God and those types of things. But that is the truth about what's going on inside of them. Uh, if you turn to Psalm 10, uh, I guess if, you, if we were to talk about either practical or functional atheism, that's kind of what un, another way to look at ungodliness. Uh, so we, we live our lives or we function as if God doesn't exist or again, he doesn't matter. Psalm 10 verse 4, it says, In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. And all his thoughts, there is no room for God. That's the NIV translation of verse 4. So again, man, because of his pride, and again, he's a wicked man, he's prideful, and because of his pride, he refuses to seek God. Remember, the Bible says that, that if we seek God, we can find him. I mean, it says that. Man doesn't want to do that. Not on his own. Man will not do that. And that's what Psalm is telling us. So remember that in the Psalms, there's a lot of theology a lot of rich theology there on the Psalms. Statements that are made that if we take our time and read it slowly, there are these great declarations, propositional declarations of truth uh, that, um, that we need to submit to, that we need to embrace as being true. Uh, and, then, and then also along with that, he kind of adds to that, that not only does this man not seek God, there's no room for God. Because why? He suppresses God in unrighteousness. He fills his mind. He fills his life with other things and pursues those things. And so there's just, there's no room, there's no time for God with this individual. So again, if you look at Psalm 14, again, we have, remember that phrase, there is no God. When he says, the fool said in heart, there is no God. When the fool says there is no God, it is not a philosophical denial of God's existence. Uh, it is to reject the belief, again, that God matters, that, that God's will is of any importance in human affairs. They, they don't care. So here's the thing that, again, it's not that we broadcast this and kind of shove it in the face of the non-believer. This is to give us as believers understanding. Every single non-believer rejects belief in God. 
Every single one of them. That, that's what Scripture says. Every single one of them rejects the idea of God's will as being important in any way. They, they just flat out refuse to see it and they won't acknowledge it. And unless God does a work in their heart, and, and we'll see that in time as we work our way through the book of Romans, they're not, they, again, they're not going to get it because they don't want to. That's why we pray for our non-believing friends, that God would soften their hearts, that God would open their eyes, that God would turn them to himself, to God, that God would bless our communication with them because they're dead set against it. You and I would never be able to, in the flesh, convince anyone that they should believe in God and turn their life over to Him. They won't do it. You'll, you'll even have individuals who will pretend to do it just to get us or someone else off their back, or maybe to give themselves some temporary relief from guilt. But there's no genuine commitment to Christ. I mean, again, when I say that, I'm not saying that that's true with every person, because it's not. People get saved all the time. But generally speaking, people will do that. That's why we have to be very careful to make sure that we don't just assume that when someone says they believe in God, that mean, that that means somehow they believe in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is God's Son, that Jesus is God, that Jesus uh, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died as a substitute for our sin, was buried, and then rose again. That doesn't mean they believe all that. When someone says, oh yeah, I believe in God, that may mean, that may mean nothing more than what I would call an intellectual nodding of the head, kind of like a, you know, they'll say, well, there'll be a phrase, God exists. And they do that. I mean, that, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, it doesn't carry any weight at all. And there's just nothing genuine about that. So, again, what we see here then with men is there's, it's just nothing more than the result of fallen man suppressing the truth of God. And so it reveals a lack of understanding and really an inability to apply what is known. But again, that inability comes because of the crippling effects of, the, of sin on us. Uh, it just wreaks havoc on our life. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, for just a moment. Ephesians, chapter 4. I'm going to read uh, three verses, verses 17 through 19, and, and listen to what Paul says. He says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Now let me pause for a moment. Um, when you see the word Gentiles in, used in the New Testament, the word Gentiles can mean one of two things. And the context almost always will help us to determine what is meant by the word Gentiles. In a very simple way, the word Gentile is simply someone who's not Jewish. That, that's what that means. You have Jews and Gentiles. That, that's how the world was divided for a long time. Uh, but the word Gentile can also be a euphemism for pagan or for a non-believer. So here, um, what Paul is saying is that he's writing to believers and he says you should no longer walk as the rest of the, and this would be unbelievers or pagans walk, and that is in the futility of their mind. And, and here that's the emptiness of their mind. And he's going to explain what he means by the emptiness of their mind. Verse 18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So they're ignorant. Again, that doesn't mean stupid, but they don't have the knowledge of God. Because they don't have the knowledge of God, the reason why they don't have the knowledge of God is because they're separated from God. And they're separated from God because of their sin. 
not only the curse of sin, but the sins they commit. That's why it says that their understanding is darkened. That's the effect of sin on man. When man commits sin, his understanding of spiritual things is further darkened. And so it's difficult for him to grasp that. That's why, again, the natural man on his own, unaided by God, is not going to be able to find God, much less understand him. So again, uh, so having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. And that's the other way to describe what sin does to us. It blinds our hearts from being able to see or being willing to submit ourselves to God. Who, being past feeling, so so we've kind of moved beyond our, our feelings uh, in this sense, have given themselves over to, to lewdness. So uh, here, the idea of who've, who, being past feeling, were past feeling guilt. We're beyond that. We no longer feel guilty for our sin. Doesn't mean you never feel guilty for any sin, but for the most part, most of our sins, we just don't feel guilty about. Uh, you may even experience this now as a believer. How many times have we lied to someone, and you and I, we felt no guilt at all? We told someone something that was untrue. Maybe because we wanted to end a conversation, because we wanted to stop, we wanted to, we wanted to think good of us. Whatever happened to me, we just lie. No guilt. We we've moved. We are beyond feeling. You might betray an individual. You might gossip about somebody. You don't feel guilty. You might feel guilty when you get caught, but that's different. We we have no guilt. We've moved beyond feeling, and that's what he's talking about. So we've moved past or being past feeling. They've given themselves over to lewdness. To work all uncleanness with greediness. So it's another way of talking about, and Romans will bring it up again later, that when you present your members, when you present your hands, your eyes, your mind, to, to be involved in sin, we become enslaved to sin. It becomes our master. It kind of leads and directs us because we, we want it to. We've given ourselves over to it. And that's what's happened here, is that we've given ourselves over to behave in, in a lewd way. Uh, we've given ourselves over to to work all uncleanness with greediness. And you see it all the time in the sense that if you ever watched um, when an individual is arrested for a, a crime, uh, let's say that it's uh, one of those you know, 20, 20, 40 hours, one of those shows, and so they're showing you the, the videotape of a person in the interview room and the officer's interviewing them and asking them questions and they just lie left and right. They lie about where they've been, lie about what they did. And the officer make the officer lets them speak and says, well, actually, we know that you weren't with so-and-so because we've talked with them. And, you know, they, they didn't see you all night. And the person, oh, yeah, now I remember. I was over here. And so the person may say, well, we've actually checked the videotape because there's a security camera at that place and you're not on it. So you see this individual without guilt lying to cover up what they've, what they've done. Uh, and, and there are times when they never come clean. Sometimes they go, yeah, and they kind of confess everything. In fact, there's been times, and we're not going to get into the reasons why they do it, but there's been times when a man is suspected of being a serial killer. And finally, the police have enough evidence uh, to arrest the individual and at least charge him with one or two murders. And there's been a few cases where these individuals, once it becomes clear they're going to be found guilty of, of this crime of murder, they then confess to another 15 or 20 and will take the police to, if they when they remember, they remember, it's amazing how much they remember, they would take them to the different locations where they buried the bodies and, and we find them. And, and we, we can see that this individual lived a life of, it was just unbelievable, of, of you know, conning people and, and, and finding ways to 
uh, get close to people and then, and then they kill them and to mutilate their bodies or whatever they do. Also, when it comes to the greediness, you know, we, we read stories of individuals, whether they are dictators in certain countries or maybe a man or a woman who becomes a CEO at a company where because they're just driven by their greed and, and they betray friends, they betray trust because of their desire for power and their desire for money. And that's very common on, on a large and smaller scale. And that's, that's what the book is talking about. That's what the scriptures teach us about who we are as people. We do that naturally because of sin. Again, as we kind of work our way through, through these passages, uh, also keep this in mind, that the things that we do outwardly, uh, we do because of our condition. And our condition affects our decisions and what we pursue. So the truth of God asserts, and asserts it rather dogmatically, that man does not seek after God. And that implies that man ought to seek after God. Again, verse 4 of Psalm 10, In his pride the wicked does not seek him, and all his thoughts there is no room for God. So you see there's an implication there. As God reveals this, he says the pride in the wicked, the pride, in his pride the wicked, they don't seek me. Why? Because they, they should. There's no room in his thoughts for God where there should be. Psalm 14, 2, the Lord, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who have an understanding of life and seek God. Because they should. And, and man doesn't. The word seek there that's used here, uh, where it comes to being used for seeking God, it means to search out. It means to crave uh, or investigate. So it's a word that involves both emotion and willful intent or action. So again, it's to search out. It's that activity. Crave is more of the, uh, an inner desire, a hunger uh, for something to, that may drive us to investigate, to, to search out, to seek after. In this case, it would be God. But man's written God off. He, man, doesn't give it a second thought. He doesn't want to do this. Think about God, though he should. And again, remember, he knows he should and is even commanded to. It's interesting. There's been a lot of studies through the years and uh, about human behavior. And one of the things that, uh, you know, there's thousands of different kinds of studies we can look at that kind of describe what we do when we're alone, the kind of habits we have. So I remember, I remember reading one, one study, and it was a study about people and, and travel and, and their stay in hotels, motels, that kind of thing. And it was divided up, you know, whether it was a traveling businessman or families on vacation, all, all types of groups. And so they just kind of came up with their observations. And one of them was that um, I believe it's about, it's somewhere between 75 and 85%. I, I can't remember the exact number anymore, but it's a very high percentage. So somewhere between 75 and 85% of all individuals, when they check into a hotel, and they, and they enter their room, between 75 and 85% of them within the first 30 seconds will turn on the TV even if they have no intention on watching it. They want the background noise. They don't want silence. A lot of psychologists have looked at that. They've talked about it. They've re-interviewed some people. And it seems that there's more than one reason for that. But one of the main reasons for that is man does not want to be in a room alone with his thoughts. He doesn't want to think. 
He doesn't want to give himself time to think. And I think that part of it may be because when, when we begin to think about things or just allow our mind to drift, in a sense, in a, in a quiet room, we're going to be thinking about our life. Uh, we're going to be thinking about what does our life mean? Does our life have any value? I'm here alone. Uh, you can be alone for many different reasons. It doesn't mean that you don't have any friends, but you may begin to think about that. Do I have any real friends? Do I really miss my wife or husband? Do they miss me? I, I don't miss my kids. I miss my kids. There's all kinds of things that go through our mind, and we don't want to be left alone with those things, and so we want that background noise. And I just think it's interesting. What's also interesting when you think about all this is that a lot of people are, are seeking after happiness. You ask individuals, what are you searching for in life? Or what are you seeking? What would you like to have in your life? And, and a lot of people will say that, that they would like to find happiness. Or they would like to experience happiness more often than, than they do. And what many people or many philosophies kind of advise people that to, to seek out happiness inside of you, to look inside. You're not going to find happiness in, inside of ourselves. It's just not there. We have to go outside of ourselves to find happiness. We have to go somewhere else in life. We have to, our, our, our happiness is, is found outside of who we are as people. But we're blind to that. We should seek out God in order to be happy. True wisdom consists in seeking God for all these things. In our life, God proposes himself as the object that men are to seek. That's what this psalm is all about. But again, due to our own perversity, we flee from God and we go the wrong way. And we seek to fill our lives up with other things. By comparison to God, those other things really don't have much value. Sometimes compared to our families, those, lot, those things we pursue don't have much value. But it's amazing what we will pursue uh, in our perversity, because that's what we are. We're perverse. Doesn't always the word perverse does not always only insinuate sexual sin. Our hearts are perverted. You know, we, we go against God. We go against our conscience. We go the wrong way. All of that is of a, a, a perversion of what is good. And so we are seeking happiness or success or whatever it is. We're seeking it, uh, but but not in God. And God is putting himself out there and says that's where we're going to find all of that. So we do not seek out God. We don't seek to investigate where God is. We don't seek to investigate those things that pertain to God. We don't seek out information on salvation. We don't really want it. I mean, people do want... If a person believes in hell, they do want to not go there. But not enough that they're going to seek out those things and seek out salvation. Their, their hope is that at the last minute they can, you know, make the right decision. Or maybe in the end they'll have more good than bad, you know, those types of things. Uh, a, a, there's, there's a saying, I've seen it on bumper stickers. I don't know if people do bumper stickers too much anymore, but it doesn't really matter. But, but the saying is true, and that is many individuals who intend to seek the Lord at 11 p.m., die at 10.30. And that's kind of how life goes. 
So again, we don't want anything to do with God. We don't want anything that pertains to God. We want nothing to do with it. If you would turn to the Old Testament, the Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, just, just go to Kings and Samuel and you'll find Chronicles. They're all together. But go to Second Chronicles chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 13 and 14 and then uh, jump to uh, chapter 16, verse 12. But uh, you'll see what I'm getting at when I read this. So Second Chronicles, beginning in verse 12. Thus King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. Now Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah, an an Ammonitus, and he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. And then in chapter 16, verse 12, And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So you see, left to ourselves, in our, our nature, which the Bible calls our sin nature, it is not in our nature to seek after God or to seek God. We don't do that naturally. Something has to happen. There has to be some stimulus. Something needs to take place, which I believe is, is the hand of God. And we'll see that again as we continue to work our way through Romans. But it's not in our nature to do that. So again, as we pray for our children, as we pray for our grandchildren, as we pray for those that we know that don't know God, remember, it's not in their nature to seek God. We, we, we should ask that God would use us to help them that God would use us as we invite them to church, as we invite them to a Bible study, as we talk to them about how perhaps how we came to faith in Christ, as we talk about how our lives have been fulfilled by the relationship that we have with God, how God perhaps has answered prayer, those types of things. We pray that they would hear and understand those things that we're saying to them. So, uh, again, it's not our nature to seek God, it really was at one time. It was in man's nature to seek God. But that was before man's fall into sin. And then when man fell into sin, immediately that changed. Let me read to you the words from Genesis 3, verses 7 and 8. Then the eye, this is when they both with soon Adam and Eve sinned. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So you see what they did naturally. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, the very f- first thing they did when God showed up was they hid. They, they did not naturally seek God. They, they covered themselves. So again, Romans chapter 3, verse 11, which is a quote from Psalm 14 or maybe Psalm 53. God is Elohim. When you when you come across the different names of God in the Bible, Elohim is a word for God that is plural. It indicates the one true God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is not saying that man does not seek after religious experiences. It doesn't say that man does not seek after a God of his own thinking or the gods of his own choosing. But it is saying that he does not seek after the one true God, which we have said before. 
Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher back in the 1800s, kind of gave this example. And this is is what uh, what he said. He said, one day a man said that he did not believe any man had the power to walk to the house of God unless the Father, God in heaven, drew him. This was a very foolish saying, according to Spurgeon. Because as long as a man was alive and had legs, it was easy for him to walk to the house of God, as it was to the house of Satan. There is no lack of physical power in coming to Christ, as men physically as physically men are alive. They can raise a hand in coming to Christ. They can walk down the aisle in coming to Christ. They can say a prayer in coming to Christ. But just because they did all these things physically does not mean that they truly came to Christ. The defect, then, is not in the body, as the natural man is alive and strong physically. The defect is in the mind and in the heart. It is spiritual. He is spiritually dead. So Spurgeon goes on, and he gives the example of a lion and a sheep. And he says this, A lion has legs, so does a sheep. The lion has a mouth, so does a sheep. The lion has ears, so does a sheep. Physically, both can walk and eat. But the lion will not eat grass like a sheep, and the sheep will not eat meat like a lion. The distinction is in their nature. By nature, the lion is different than a sheep. So in the same way, the natural man, our, again, the natural man, meaning the man who is unsaved, the non-believer, our nature is so corrupt that we have no will, we have no desire to come to Christ unless we're drawn by the Spirit of God. And thus, as we have said before, that's why we pray the way that we pray for them. So again, let's look, go back to Romans 3, if you're not already there already. And again, let me reread verses 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? And the reason why he's asking that question again, he talked about the advantages the Jews had. They had the oracles of God. They had the commands of God. And so he says, are, are they any better off? Meaning, are they better off because they possess these things? They're not under judgment. And what he's saying is, uh, no, they're, they're, they're not any better off at all for just possessing those things. So are Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have both already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have sinned. Uh, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their, under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So again, instead of seeking God, it says that we've wandered away. We've turned aside from that which we know to be true. Again, remember we emphasize that. That man is suppressing the truth. He's not ignorant of the truth. He's suppressing the truth. He doesn't know much about God, but he knows enough to know that he should seek God and turn to God. So man then, because of his wickedness, turns aside from what he knows to be true. And when we do that, we we kind of spoil. It's like fermenting food. Uh, And we then become useless. So verse 12, where it says that we have turned aside, means that we no longer put our trust or our confidence in someone. We turn away. So, so mankind no longer puts his trust or his confidence in God. He's turned away from God. He has ceased to do this, 
trust God, mankind as a whole, with the implication of engaging in an alternative, which means he stops trusting. So it's not that all have stopped trusting and or believing in God. They've actually turned away from it towards the alternative. So they're still trusting. They're trusting in something else. And they are as one. They have all together done this. All of mankind as a group, as a race, they, we've all done this. Everyone, no one has any less guilt or more guilt than the other. And again, that's in Isaiah 53, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, you'll find those things. It says that man has turned aside and become unprofitable. That means to engage in wrong behavior, which is totally wrong and harmful. Uh, it means to go wrong, to become perverse, to become useless, uh, to become spoiled like bad milk. So these human beings are of no value in regard to works of righteousness. So keep the distinction. It's not saying that we are of no value as human beings and that we are worthless because Christ came and died for us. But when it comes uh, to the works of righteousness, whatever good spoiled, whatever good spoiled milk may be for, it's, it's ruined, it's destroyed. It, it, it cannot be used. It, it may appear to look the same, but it's of no value. That's the idea. We are of no value in that sense to God. We have no value to others, no value to ourselves. Uh, we're not like a bruised apple where you can kind of cut out the bad spot and eat the rest. We're like the sour milk. You pour sour milk in your coffee. Uh, the milk doesn't change, but now your coffee is bad. So sin does not cause us to have a bad bruise. We are no good. You throw out the bad milk. You can't change it. You cannot add something to unsour it. And so that's what's being emphasized here uh, again in these verses, especially now in verse 12. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, reads this way. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. So the idea is, is that we need to be pure, have spotless clothes, you know, a spotless you know, righteousness that we need to go into heaven. Isaiah says, all of us have become, we're unclean. All, we're, we're filthy. Our righteous deeds, the good that we do, is like a polluted garment. So let's say that you were going to go somewhere. Let, let's say that you were going to a wedding. And let's say that the, uh, um, a large number of the people are going to be wearing white. The men might be wearing white shirts and white pants, maybe just white shirts. The women are going to be wearing white dresses. But let's just say that white is the occasion of the day. Well, it doesn't take much for for work for work for dirt to show up on those things, whether you spill food or whatever it happens to be. So when the garment becomes spoiled, when you spill ketchup uh, or mustard or mud is thrown up on you, it's ruined. There's there's nothing you can do. You you have to take it off to wash it. You you can't clean it while you're wearing it. It's it's ruined, uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. We're like that. Our iniquities, they says like a leaf. You know, the leaf just is just blown away by the wind. Well, that's what happens with our sin. It just kind of just blows us away, away from God, away from His goodness. So again, mankind, we're not looking for improvement. We're looking for total change. That's why we're in need of salvation. When it comes to our children, we don't need our children to improve their behavior. 
Now, we would like their behavior to improve. We should be pleased if their behavior improves. We should never be satisfied if only their behavior improves. What we want our children to recognize is their need for Jesus Christ. There needs to be a change on the inside. So we need to make sure that we recognize that dilemma or the tension there with that. When it comes to our friends or maybe the individual who's the alcoholic or the individual who's the drug addict, we always use those as examples because we can immediately imagine an individual. We may even know people who have those issues and they've ruined their life. And so that individual may say, well, you know, I, I need to sober up. That's a true statement. He needs to sober up. But his drinking is only a symptom. It's not his problem. He thinks it's his problem. He's misdiagnosed himself. The world has misdiagnosed him. He may think, I only have to stop using crystal meth. He should stop using crystal meth. That's not a good thing. But that's just a symptom. If he stops drinking or he stops using crystal meth, even though that's an improvement and a good thing, he is not a good person. He hasn't suddenly become a righteous person who's deserving of heaven. He's, he's still a sinful man who is or woman who's in rebellion to God. And that's what these verses are talking about. So we will continue this next week. Uh, as we we're, we're Basically what we're dealing with now is, is we're looking at, at anthropology. We're looking at the study of man. What does the Bible say about man and mankind? And that's what we've been looking at. It's important to have a good handle on that so that we will have the wisdom of God in the raising of our children, in dealing with ourselves, in dealing with both believers and non-believers, and understanding why God did what he did for us and why God says the things that he says. This gives to us a proper base, a proper foundation for being able to even analyze each other psychologically. Uh, we should use the Bible. This is the base. This is the foundation that we use. It helps us to understand ourselves and the, and the weaknesses that we have and why we were in need of Christ and we were in need of absolute salvation to change us completely and not just needing that we didn't just need an, an, an attitude adjustment or, or something. So I trust this is being beneficial, that this is helpful to you as we kind of work our way through Romans. Uh, I'm purposely going through a lot of detail here so we can kind of develop the idea, the ideas as fully as we can so we can grasp these important things. So let's, let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the clarity of your word, for the boldness of your word. We thank you, Father, for the truthfulness of it that gives to us the information and truth we need to be able to understand ourselves and others in the world and to understand salvation, all the spiritual truths that are in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would burn these things deep into our hearts and minds so that it would deeply affect the way we think and what we think about. The Father, that we would use these things to uh, as we as we as we reason about life and as we analyze life, help us, Father, to come to the right conclusions based on the truth you've given us. We thank you again, Father, for the great gift of salvation. Because as we continue our trek through Romans, Father, we see what a horrible uh, position we are in, and that if you don't move to save us, we are doomed. So, Father, we thank you again for your grace and kindness, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <music>